Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. So thankful that you're here worshiping with us um, here in the sanctuary and online. And uh, this is the last sermon in a six-week series on table, table. And what I've been doing is, and um, my son preached a couple of weeks ago, but we took a look in the Newer Testament at different episodes from the life of Jesus where he dealt with a table, and then we decided that we were going to learn something about Christ through that. Now, this morning's sermon title is Table, The Tables Have Turned. The Tables Have Turned. Have you ever heard that uh, coin of phrase? table has turned, right? I looked up where it came from. No one really knows. And uh, yet the best guess is, is that it had to do with board games where you're on one side of a table and you're losing a board game. And then I guess you ask the person if you can turn the table and they say yes for some unbeknownst reason. And then after that, they lose and you win. That's how that works. So anyway, turn of uh, the tables have turned is the idea where you're losing, you're in a total defensive posture, and then something happens out of the clear blue, and suddenly you win. Now, every time I've preached on table, I've mentioned two things. Number one, in the time of Jesus, who you ate with truly mattered, truly mattered. You would never, ever, as a righteous person, ever eat with a sinner. And yet we've discovered that Jesus often ate with sinners. By the way, you may not know this, but when he was eating with sinners, it would say, and a week later, he entered the temple. Jesus was ceremonially unclean because of who he ate with. By the way, being unclean doesn't mean you're sinful. There's a lot of things in Jewish law that can leave you unclean that doesn't make you sinful. It's just that Jesus welcomed the opportunity to become unclean in order to be with sinners. By the way, it's why he came. Next thing that I always remind us of is that banquets, feasts, and dinners are the high point of culture in Jesus' day. If you were invited to one of those, that's the apex of cultural experience. I guess maybe the Super Bowl, as it were, the Grammys, or whatever you're into, it's that. And then in recap, I just wanted to go over some of the things that we've learned. One of them was, was the Last Supper. We looked at the table where Jesus met with his disciples and Judas betrayed him. We also looked at who Jesus ate with. Again, he ate with sinners. And last week, we looked at Zacchaeus, who was so sinful, he would have never invited Jesus into his own home. So Jesus was very rude culturally and invited himself into Zacchaeus's home. But one of the things that has spoken to me since studying for this sermon series is the wedding supper of the Lamb. The Bible culminates with a wedding feast where all people who have ever put their faith, hope, and trust in Christ will be part of this massive wedding banquet and the celebration will be off the charts as Jesus and the bride of Christ literally now become one. Now, this morning is uh, going to be a little bit different. 
The episode that I've chosen for us to look at is one that's awkward. Have you ever had an awkward meal? You ever have that? You ever sit down at a table? Someone loses their temper and everyone eats their peas in silence from then on. You ever have that experience? You ever enter into a room and you're like, oh, you can feel the bad mojo in the room and you're like, wow, something's wonky in here and you sit down, you try to eat and everyone's like looking at the ceiling and you're trying to figure out who the guilty person is that made it weird. Well, listen, when it comes to awkward table, this is a picture of our dining room table. This is it. That table has been part of my marriage for about 31 years because that's how long I've been married. Here's the story of that table. Fran and I, we got married and we moved to an apartment in Princeton. But we didn't have a dining room table. By the way, if you're married, you need a table to eat on. It kind of goes together. And so my roommate from undergrad and grad school and a colleague in ministry, we were in a conversation on the phone, and he said, hey, guess what? My in-laws are going to be selling their dining room set. I said, awesome. Find out how much it is, what does it look like, all that kind of stuff. And it was this set. And so there was a price quoted. I, I spoke to the father-in-law, and the price was quoted. And it's like, yeah, so I borrow a truck from a friend. We drive an hour and a half from Princeton to Philly where these people lived. And we get there, and that's the table that was set up. And there's also a china cabinet that comes with it. And uh, so we had agreed on a price and all that fun stuff. So I handed him the check, and we load up the china cabinet, and we load up the table and chairs, and I'm all excited. And then I go to pick up the table pads. You know what table pads are? They're the cushions that go on top of a nice wood table. Well, I go to pick those up, and he said, oh, no, we didn't talk about the price for those. I was like, oh, okay. Well, how? and I look at my buddy. You know what I was talking about where it gets awkward in a room? It got really awkward. And the guy quoted a price that was almost as much as the whole table set had been. So here I am, newly married. I've borrowed a truck. I've driven an hour and a half. Almost everything's loaded into the truck. And he quotes a price for the pads. What I should have done and what I did were two different things. I said, okay, like, Fran, get the checkbook, awkward. And I look, and everyone in his family are looking at the floor. No one would even look at us. So I pay him the money, and I put that stuff in the truck. And here's the truth. For 31 years, every time I sit at the table, I think about the awkwardness of where that table came from. And we've had great events at the table. We've, had, we've laughed so hard as a family, we've fallen off our chairs. But there's always, for me, this undercurrent of awkwardness around that table. And I think after two or three years of marriage, I said to Fran, I think we should get a new table. 31 years later, we still have the same awkward table. If you think that story's awkward, wait till you hear the one we're getting ready to read. It's extremely awkward. Now, the text is Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Mark chapter 11, 15 through 18. And here's what the text says. Jesus clears the temple courts. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. 
And he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. So picture this. Jesus steps up onto the 35-acre temple mount that's in Jerusalem, and there's this amazing building that is absolutely glorious to look at. And Jesus steps onto those 35 acres, and it says he drove out those who were buying and selling there. Now, the Gospel of John says he made a whip, and he drove them out. By the way, the cleansing of the temple or the clearing of the temple is in all four Gospels, which is very rare for an episode to be in all four. So Jesus begins to drive people out, and then, next sentence, he overturned the tables. The tables have been turned. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. In other words, he flips over the money changer temples, he flips over the benches that have the doves, and when people make a move to resupply, he won't let them. In other words, he shuts down the temple. He shuts it down. By the way, it's in the afternoon during the sacrificial system. So sacrifices are being made, and Jesus brings it all to a screeching halt. He stops all of it. And then reading on, it says, and as he taught them. So in other words, he flips over the tables. He stops everyone from doing anything, and then he teaches them. By the way, if there was ever a teaching... I would love to have heard, it's this one. What did he teach them? The text doesn't tell us. But I have to believe that it was something about sacrifice and forgiveness and the goodness of God. Reading on. And it says, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written? And then he quotes twice from the Older Testament prophets. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's a quote from the Older Testament. But you have made it a den of robbers. That's also a quote from the Older Testament. And if you're utilizing a smartphone or you're using a Bible, you'll see the footnotes there. Reading on, it says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, every time I preach or teach, I always give context because it's important. The context of this episode in the Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus cursing a fig tree just before he enters the city. There's a fig tree that has no fruit, and he passes judgment on it and announces that it's cursed. By the way, the fig tree, and all Bible scholars will tell you this, the fig tree is a representative of Israel. Jesus announces judgment, and then after the episode of the cleansing of the temple, they go back by the tree, and his disciples mention something because the tree has shriveled up and died in three hours. So the idea here is, this is all about God's judgment. It's what it's about. Now, when we look at our text, Jesus goes into the temple courts 
and he flips over tables, and he ceases the commerce, and he brings the sacrificial system to a halt. I want to ask you a question. In your imagination, what building represents our country the best for you? Maybe if you went to UVA, it's the rotunda. It's the most important building in America. <laughs> Maybe for some, it'd be the nation's capital. Maybe it's one of the presidential monuments in D.C., whatever the case may be. But no matter how meaningful that facility might be, it's nothing compared to the temple in Jerusalem. You see, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life. It's where you went to make sacrifice for your sin. If you had sin in your life, you would make a pilgrimage. You would go to the temple. You would go there and purchase a sacrifice. And the sacrifice would be made for your sin. The other thing is, in every religion, the temple is where the God of that temple intersects with earth. In all other religions, there's an idol in the temple. But God commanded there would be no graven images in the temple at all because it would be the place where his presence would intersect with earth. So the temple is a unique building. It's a place that God commanded to have built, and it's where his presence would dwell, and he would intersect with humankind. It was the place for sacrifice for sins. It's where you went to to get forgiveness for the sins of your life. But what we know is, by the time of Jesus, it was completely corrupt, it had, gone, it, got, it had gone from being a place where all nations were invited and blessed to where it was exclusive externally and corrupt internally, and the people that were participating there were arrogant. And so Jesus shows up, and he passes judgment, and he flips over the tables. Now, what's interesting to take note of is that in all four episodes that we find in the Gospels, no one asks them why he did it. They all ask him this question. Who gave you the authority to do that? It was about authority. And Jesus walks into the temple, and he takes authority over the temple. Jesus walks onto the Temple Mount and he takes authority over that 35-acre plot of land and the temple and he brings it to a screeching halt and he demonstrates real time that he now has authority over it. And so, where the people would go in the future for sacrifice for sins and forgiveness would be to him. Now, here's what I know, is that for most of us who love and follow Jesus, him going in and making a whip, according to the Gospel of John, and driving out people, him going in and flipping over tables, him going in and stopping everything and taking authority that way seems counterintuitive to us. Most of us view Jesus as rather meek and mild, as one po poet put it, like a toothless tiger. 
That's how we view Jesus. And yet as we put feet to our faith in the midst of this table episode, what we struggle with about Jesus is that he is the prophet. I want to explain this. We struggle with Jesus as the prophet. Now, for those of you who like a little bit deeper understanding of biblical things, I need to explain something real quickly, and it'll help you understand some things about Jesus and his uniqueness, and it's this. In the Older Testament, we had prophets, priests, and kings. All three were anointed by God to advance his kingdom in the world, all three. But here's the interesting thing. God forbade any man from being any more than two of those three. So you could be a king and a prophet, you could be a king and a priest, but you could never be prophet, priest, and king. In the Older Testament, one of the kings who was a prophet went into the temple to offer a sacrifice, and God hit him with leprosy. God judged him. The reason why is, is in the mind of God, only one person would ever be prophet, priest, and king, and that would be reserved for the Messiah. The Messiah alone would be prophet, priest, and king. And what we know is Jesus is all three. And here he is functioning as prophet. By the way, most of us are very comfortable with Jesus as king, Jesus as priest, but now he is stepping in as a prophet and he quotes two Older Testament prophets to back up what he's doing and then he brings the sacrificial system to a halt. Jesus now is officially prophet, priest, and king. He's all three. Now, not only this, but we just read in Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus is exiting the Temple Mount after this and a few other episodes. He's leaving the Temple Mount, and in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, here's what happens. Want us to take notice. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. In other words, as they're leaving the temple mount, one of his disciples turns and points at the temple with all of its colonnades, its massive construction. By the way, I've been on the temple mount in Israel, in Jerusalem, dozens of times. And when you go there, in the wall, there are stones as big as a Greyhound bus. These stones are massive. The foundation has been there for, what, 2,500 years, 2,700 years? And you look at the external wall. So the disciples are leaving. They point at the temple with all of its beauty and its massive construction. And they say, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied, and then he's a prophet. He says, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. I've been on the Temple Mount dozens of times. There's not a single stone on the Temple Mount that's from the temple. They're all gone. It's a flat piece of ground. And in A.D. 70, what Jesus prophesied came true, and the Roman Empire came and invaded Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the temple and tore it to the ground. 
By the way, from that day on, there has never been sacrifice for sins. But there actually is. It's in Jesus. Jesus stood in the temple courts before his death, burial, and resurrection, and he brought the sacrificial system to a halt. And he announced that he has authority over sacrifice and for the forgiveness of sins. So when we think about what Jesus does, he is prophet. He's not just priest and king. Now again, here's what I know for those of us here in the sanctuary and those of us worshiping online. We like Jesus to be priest and king. But when he becomes prophet, we look at him and go, this seems so strange. For many of us, we have no sanctified imagination for Jesus going up onto the temple mounts and doing what he did in cleansing the temple. We have none. Yet here's the thing. God's judgment always comes out of a heart of grace and repair. Always. You see, Jesus went up on the temple mount and he displayed clearly the corruption. By the way, the corruption of the money changers had reached a level that was shocking. If you went to Jerusalem and you wanted to buy a sacrifice... There's extra biblical literature that seems to show that the temple currency, which is the only way you could buy anything for sacrifice, was at a ratio as high as 50 to 1. What that meant is you'd go with a U.S. dollar and you'd take, take a pilgrimage to make sacrifice for your sin. And when you got into the courtyard to go towards buying your sacrifice, the doves, which were the cheapest, least expensive of all of the animal sacrifice, were sitting on benches, and right next to it were the money changers. And in order to buy a sanctified dove or pigeon, you had to exchange your currency into temple currency, and then you'd take that and you'd go buy the dove. The exchange rate was as high as 50 to 1. So you'd pick out one U.S. dollar and you'd go to those that have temple exchange. And here's the thing. The Sadducees who were running the temple were becoming wealthy at a pace that no one had ever dreamed. And here's why. Jesus stands in front of the money changers and he flips over the tables Because if you were poor and you showed up to buy a dove, you brought what was reasonable and it was nowhere close to enough money when you had exchanged it. And there were the doves, the money exchangers, and Jesus flips over both tables because people were making pilgrimages for sacrifice and forgiveness and they couldn't get in and they left without sacrifice and forgiveness for their sins. But here's the truth. Jesus believes that he has the authority to speak into the center of our lives. Jesus goes into the temple and all of the Jewish leadership that was there were shocked at what he did. But Jesus believed because he truly is the incarnation of God that he has a right to step into the middle of the worship of God and call out what's wrong. Now the question has to be for me and for you as we conclude this temple se- or table series is this, is that do I believe that Jesus has the right 
to square up to Pete Hartwig and to speak into my life about the things of my life that are not right before God. You see, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus has the right to prophesy, to bring judgment, to announce judgment over my life. And what's cool about that is if I'm willing to repent and listen, not only is he the one that brings the conviction, but he's also the one that has the power and the authority to do something about it. So when he convicts me, and I've experienced this innumerable times, where God comes and he convicts me by the power of the Spirit and Christ calls judgment on something in my life that is not right. And if I agree with him in the midst of that, then God brings grace and power and authority to change that area of my life. Listen, Jesus' judgment on the temple and the Temple Mount was out of grace and love and concern. But it's clear in the text that no one repents, no one listens, and as a matter of fact, they try to figure out how to kill him. That was their response. Their response wasn't a softened heart. The response was actually a harder heart than had been there before. And so now Jesus is being pushed away Jesus is being planned in their eyes as how do we kill him instead of receiving him and accepting him. Here's what I know. I know Jesus' prophet is tough for us. We believe that almost no one has the right to speak into our life. We believe that if it's okay and you think it's okay, then go ahead. And yet in the kingdom of Jesus, Jesus' prophet and priest, and king. And as prophet, he comes to the tables, and he flips them. And my question is, what about my life and yours? Are there any tables that Jesus would flip in our lives? Is there anything that you know of in your life that God has convicted you of, and you know it? Jesus comes as prophet, not to bring destruction, but to bring judgment and judgment is a positive thing. It allows us to see where we're off and where there's error. And in his judgment, there's also the power and the authority through forgiveness and repentance to live a transformed life. Would you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, I'd like us to take a moment in God's presence. In just a moment, Blake and the worship team are going to lead us in worship. Then following that, I'll come up and bring the pastoral blessing. And then we're going to open up the front for a time of prayer. If you sense in your heart, as we now close our eyes in God's presence, if you sense in your heart that Jesus has stepped into your temple court, the Newer Testament is clear that we now are the temples of the Spirit. Jesus has the authority and he has the right to step into our life and show us the error of our ways. 
and to call us out and to bring judgment and to do it rightly and to call us out in areas where we know we're outside of God's best. I am beseeching you with a pastoral heart, whether you're worshiping with us online or in this sanctuary, that you would heed the voice of God. That when Jesus comes in and starts to overturn tables, it's because it's time for us to repent. It's time for us to listen to him. It's time for us to agree with his assessment and his judgment and then to repent and move towards him. Jesus is prophet and priest and king. He's prophet. My heart is, is that all of us would be open to Jesus as prophet. God, here we are in your presence. Help us to be women and men who are open to the conviction of the prophetic spirit. God, help us to be open, Jesus, to the fullness of who you are. I pray over all of our lives that you would reveal and drive out those things that in the end are so not good for us anyway. Do that work in us and through us.